There are, of course, many areas of misunderstanding in Buddhism, and this is perhaps not uh, exclusively limited to uh, our perception and understanding of Buddhism. I think that this is the general theme that we find throughout the Buddhist teachings, that we misunderstand reality. We misunderstand how we exist, how everyone exists, and so on. And because of that, we project all sorts of nonsense that doesn't correspond to reality. And not only do we project that, but we uh, unknowingly believe it. We believe that it does correspond to reality. And so in clearing up misunderstandings about Buddhism, I think it also helps us to start to recognize how we project all sorts of nonsense, not just on the teachings, but uh, in general on ourselves, on others, on the various situations that we face in life. One of the uh, topics that uh, we uh, have misunderstanding about is karma. And uh, many of us tend to think that it has to do with fate, that uh, this is uh, something bad, terrible happens to us, and we say, well, that's our karma. And we tend to think that, uh, well, we were naughty <laughs> in previous lives or earlier in this life, and now we deserve this because we were bad and we are guilty. And uh, this is uh, a projection of a certain conceptual framework from uh, Western thinking that has nothing to do with uh, the actual Buddhist teachings. But uh, because of that, we feel quite terrible. And uh, it uh, just tends to amplify our belief in a solid self that is inherently bad. And that uh, certainly is not the uh, Buddhist teaching. So if we uh, ask what does uh, the term karma actually mean, well, if you look at the Tibetan word, the Tibetan word is the colloquial word for actions. And so often when we hear teachings about uh, karma, then uh, people will translate it as actions. But uh, if you think about that, that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Because if the, one of the roots of our difficulties in life are our actions, then it would absurdly follow that all we have to do is stop doing everything, anything, and then we would be free. But, uh, you know, just sit there and do nothing. And then all your problems will go away. So clearly, Karma does not mean uh, actions itself, although the colloquial word for it means actions. But uh, actually what it's talking about is the compulsiveness, the compulsion behind our actions that drives us to act in a certain way, or to speak in a certain way, or to think in a certain way. We act in these various ways, and it builds up tendencies and habits to uh, uh, 
neural pathways, this type of thing, and then that ripens into many different aspects. We'll get into that uh, uh, later in the teachings. But uh, one of the things that it ripens into is our feeling like doing something. I would like to do something. I want to do something, or I want to say something. And when that happens, then karma kicks in. Karma then is the compulsiveness that leads us to actually do what we feel like doing, or what we want to do. And that's what you need to overcome. You need to find that space between when you feel like saying something nasty to somebody, and when you actually say it, that if you can find that space, that gives you the opportunity to use discriminating awareness to decide to discriminate. Will that be helpful? Will that be harmful? This is what distinguishes us from animals, that we have that ability to discriminate. Is it helpful? Is it harmful? And not just act out of instinct, out of habit. Well, this is what karma is speaking about. And that can be the uh, compulsive impulse to repeat similar type of behavior that we had before, or the compulsion to get into a situation, like to, um, I felt like going to, you know, the store. And so then compulsively we go to the store, and that might then lead to being hit by a car. You know, so it, it gets us into a situation in which things happen to us as well. So this compulsiveness that uh, we do things, very often it's not at all obvious that it's going to end up in a difficult situation. But uh, this is what karma is all about, that compulsiveness. And what we want to do is obviously to overcome being under the control, the helpless control of uh, our karma. And we want to somehow get rid of that and get rid of what it is uh, coming from, you know, what causes us to build up these uh, various uh, habits, whether they are negative habits to be destructive or even positive habits that can be quite neurotic like being a perfectionist, you know, always wanting to constantly clean, constantly correct everybody, you know, being a grammar Nazi, this type of uh, syndrome. So perfectionism as well can lead to an awful lot of uh, difficulties. You know, that projection, that illusion that somehow, you know, I can be perfect and uh, never works. Anyway. Uh, your house is never clean enough, so it doesn't matter how many times you clean it. You still feel as though you have to clean it more. Uh, as I mentioned, I think the main topic that I'd like to uh, focus on is uh, Tantra. And Tantra, of course, is one of the methods that uh, we use to overcome being under this control of the compulsiveness of our uh, karma. We want to overcome that. And one of the misconceptions, of course, I have a list here of some misconceptions, uh, is thinking that Tantra or Mahamudra or Dzogchen are easy paths to enlightenment. 
Well, nobody ever said they were easy. They may be very efficient, but they certainly aren't easy. They are very, very difficult paths. And there's no way that we can bypass cause and effect. Although Tantra is known as the resultant vehicle because we practice now in a manner that is similar to what we will attain as a Buddha. You know, now pretending that we are in the form of a Buddhist deity, uh, Yidam, this meditational figure, and that our behavior is like that of a Buddha. We're able to help all beings, and our speech is like a Buddha, a mantra, and our environment is pure, like a mandala, and uh, our way of enjoying things is blissful, you know, not associated with confusion. So, although we practice now in a way that's similar to the uh, uh, result that we want to attain, nevertheless, that's not going to happen you know, in actuality, unless we build up the causes for it. And so, uh, there's no way to bypass that. It's not easy uh, by any means. So enlightenment is not going to happen just instantly like that. But uh, we hear a lot of uh, mention that Tantra, particularly the highest class of Tantra, is uh, uh, it will enable us to attain enlightenment in one lifetime. And uh, even within one lifetime, uh, we'll be able to attain it in three years and three phases of the moon. So that's uh, a phase of the moon is from new moon to full, to full moon or full moon to new moon. So that is one and a half months. So you think, wow, you know. I'd really like a bargain to get it cheaply, and so we'll go for the uh, Tantra path. But uh, sometimes, as Holiness the Dalai Lama calls this uh, uh, Buddhist propaganda, that uh, it uh, gives us encouragement that uh, we will be able to attain enlightenment, but uh, it's in one lifetime, but that's very, very, very rare, unless we have built up a tremendous amount of positive force and so on in previous lifetimes, you know, particularly. So what is this uh, business about three years and three phases of the moon? And actually that comes from the uh, Kala Chakra Tantra. And in Kala Chakra, it, uh, which means cycles of time, we uh, uh, dif you know, differentiate or analyze very carefully the uh, breath. And the breath shifts 12 times during the day between going primarily through one nostril or the other nostril. And as it makes that uh, transition between one nostril and the next, uh, there's uh, 67 and a half, how they count that, I don't know. But anyway, 67 and a half breaths that pass uh, equally through both nostrils. And when it does that, uh, the energy that's behind the breath goes into the central channel. And you want to be able to centralize and bring into the central channel all the breaths, and this is referring to what in uh, Indian literature is called prana or chi in Chinese uh, literature. You want to bring all this subtle energy into the central channel and dissolve it because the compulsiveness of our karma is actually driven by the neurotic energy, if we want to use a Western term, that flows haphazardly through our body. 
makes us feel nervous, makes us feel tense and uh, stressed. These are, in Kala Chakra, called the winds of karma, the breaths of karma. So you want to be able to bring this into the central channel. And the, so 67 and a half breaths, now you need to be very good in arithmetic, that go through the uh, nostrils equally in the 12 shifts of a day. And the number of breaths that would go into the central channel in a 100-year-long lifespan of such breaths, and then you take that number of breaths and you divide it. If you were to have those breaths consecutively, that would cover a span of three years and three phases of the moon. So that is where this figure comes from. It's not arbitrary. And it is to represent that uh, we really want to get all these winds into the central channel. So when we understand that, uh, it gives us encouragement, but we don't have the naivety into thinking that all we have to do is a three-year retreat, and uh, that's it. You know, we're enlightened, because chances are we're going to be very disappointed at the end of a three-year retreat, especially if we spend most of the time mentally wandering. So we need to avoid the misconception that it's going to be easy and not be lazy about uh, our Buddhist practice. Often we want an easy path, a quick path, because we don't want to put in the hard work. We are very busy. We don't have much time. And so we want it uh, cheaply. And if you look at all the teachings, no matter which tradition we come from, it's going to emphasize that uh, before we can really have any possibility of success in Tantra, we need to practice the so-called preliminaries. And you can't skip the preliminaries. And there are two sets of them, the shared preliminaries, which are shared between Sutra and uh, Tantra, sometimes called common preliminaries, but if you hear the word common, you think it's ordinary, and so I don't really need them. But uh, the word really means shared in common between Sutra and Tantra, and then the uncommon ones. Now, I think a lot of misunderstanding comes because of, in general, because of translation, but if we have this term preliminary, then you think that well, I mean, I can do without these preliminaries. I don't need it. Let's just get on to the good stuff. But uh, I think a more accurate uh, understanding of the term is preparation. Preparatory practices, you need to prepare. The way that uh, my, uh, one of my teachers explained it was uh, using a, an image from uh, Tibet, that if you're going to go on a long caravan journey, you have to prepare very well. You have to pack everything and get it organized so that it can fit on the back of the yaks and so on. So similarly, I mean, obviously, we don't go on yak caravan journeys here in uh, Norway uh, in the West. But uh, if we're going to undertake a uh, great spiritual journey, we need to prepare for it. We need to pack our bags. And we have to have with us on this journey our understanding of the basic 
teachings, the context within which we're going to practice Tantra. Without it, Tantra just seems like absolute insanity. That, uh, you might as well be imagining that you are Mickey Mouse or the, you know, the Red Fairy and you're leading everybody to Disneyland or something like that. This is not at all what uh, Tantra is about. So uh, these preliminaries, these prepar pre preparatory practices are absolutely essential. And that leads us to the next misunderstanding, which is instantly starting to do these preparatory practices, Ngundro. It's called, usually we think of Ngundro, uh, something that comes before is literally uh, the meaning, as uh, uh, just the set of uh, 100,000 prostrations, 100,000 this, 100,000 that. But uh, actually, it's a big problem when we get into that prematurely, without this background, without the shared uh, preparatory practices. And this is uh, the topic in uh, uh, the Kargyu tradition presented as uh, the four thoughts that turn the mind to the Dharma. These are very, very essential. Without them, as I say, our Dharma practice doesn't make any sense. So just to review them, I'm sure you're familiar with them, the precious human rebirth, and thinking in terms of death and impermanence so we don't waste our time, that uh, we need to actually appreciate the positive things that we have about life, not spend all our time complaining about uh, uh, you know, difficulties and so on. Well, of course, samsara is difficult. Of course, things are going to be you know, not ideal, but it doesn't help to complain about it. Uh, look at the positive things that you have going for you and take advantage of that. And uh, it's not going to last forever. So don't take it for granted. This is uh, essential in terms of any type of practice that uh, we undertake. And then the laws of karma. So we need to understand, and that gets us into our understanding of what is karma. And we need to then refrain from acting destructively. You know, we have built up so many negative habits. If one reviews the amount of time each day when we have either useless or negative thoughts or behavior, or when we have kind thoughts and kind behavior, the negative one far outweighs the positive ones, especially if we think in terms of our lifetime, let alone previous lifetimes. And so we need to very strongly refrain from uh, destructive behavior. When we feel like doing something negative, acting under the influence of greed or selfishness or anger and so on, or just being naive, like interrupting people all the time with our text messages and assuming that you know, we are the most important thing in the world so they should drop everything and answer us. This type of uh, behavior and answer us instantly, otherwise we get really angry and upset. Um, discriminate. Is this helpful or is it harmful? You know, do you have time or don't you have time rather than just interrupting people? This type of uh, behavior. So that builds up discipline, which of course is going to be necessary and essential in our Tantra practice. And then on the basis of that, <laughs> taking refuge. 
Refuge is very important. There's a lot of misunderstanding about uh, refuge. We tend to trivialize it. It's not something trivial at all. It's not just uh, you know, taking a little piece of hair and cutting it and getting a Tibetan name and wearing a red string. That is not at all what uh, the significance of uh, refuge is. You know, now we've joined the club. But uh, it really is referring to putting a positive, safe direction in our life, of, uh, indicated by the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. So this is what we're aiming for. These are examples, our role models, and conviction that we can actually attain that. So uh, put that direction in our life. So our life has meaning. It's very, very important that uh, we have some sort of goal and meaning in our life. It's not just pointless. And that then becomes a very firm foundation for all our Dharma practice, and certainly in Tantra as well, if we don't have this uh, very strong sense of refuge. And that misunderstanding is that uh, uh, refuge is passive. It's not passive at all. It's not a matter of, oh, Buddha, save me, and uh, then we just sit there and wait to be saved, and just open up and we'll be saved. That's in other traditions, but not in the Buddhist tradition. Buddhist tradition is if uh, we want to help others, if we want to attain enlightenment, even if we want to just attain liberation, we have to put in causes in order to experience an effect not going to happen unless you build up the causes. So we have to do something. We have to actively go in that uh, direction. To take refuge means to actually put that direction in our life. To go in that direction is indicated by the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. Then we think of the disadvantages of samsara. Well, it's very important if we're really going to practice Tantra that, uh, and if we're going to practice the Dharma in any sort of very serious uh, way that we start to really take rebirth into consideration and take it very seriously. We can practice what I call Dharma light version which is just thinking in terms of this lifetime and uh, uh, working to overcome as best as possible our disturbing emotions and our projections and so on, and to be kind to others. This is perfectly all right, but that is not the full version of the Dharma. Uh, there are many shortcomings that come when we misunderstand Dharma to just be speaking about this lifetime. The, uh, one of the large, greatest problems that comes from that is that, uh, um, let's say you have a baby and the baby dies. And then, well, the baby didn't do anything you know, negative or terrible, so why has this happened to my baby? So karma doesn't make any sense you know, in terms of, uh, uh, what should we say, causality, if we limit things to uh, just this lifetime. And again, it's not, well, the baby was naughty in a previous lifetime, and so the baby deserves it. It's not that at all. But uh, we have, uh, from a Buddhist point of view, beginningless lifetimes, there's no beginning. And if we don't understand that, 
and that's not easy to understand, then we have a whole problem with uh, the nature of the mind and the purity of the mind in terms of uh, was there a creator of the mind? And if there was a creator, then there are a lot of logical contradictions that uh, come from that. And it's uh, very difficult to really understand the teachings on emptiness or voidness and so on if we think just in terms of an absolute beginning in this lifetime and an absolute end when we die. So when we think about the disadvantages of samsara and these uh, four thoughts that turn the mind to the Dharma, we start to understand the whole process of uh, rebirth. And this is very essential in the practice of Tantra because in Tantra, what uh, in the Kaya's class of Tantra, what we want to do is to transform and get rid of this whole process of death, bardo, and rebirth. Now, if you don't believe in bardo and rebirth, then it doesn't make any sense in trying to transform and rid ourselves of this uncontrollably recurring cycle. And this is what samsara actually means, is uncontrollably recurring rebirth with all the problems that it comes of having this type of limited body, limited mind, gets sick, it uh, grows old, it grows weak, um, very, very frail. And our minds, we're confused, it takes us so long before we grow up. I mean, being a baby and helpless, really awful. So we have this uncontrollably recurring rebirth under the influence of karma and this is uh, all to be understood then in terms of the disturbing emotions that we have that our minds are limited we have anger and so on these trigger our compulsive behavior and we need to understand then the 12 links of dependent arising which explain the whole process of how rebirth works and understand the Four Noble Truths. Four Noble Truths, if we don't understand what the deepest type of suffering is and what its deepest cause is and the fact that it actually is possible to get rid of it and to really have confidence based on understanding of the purity of the mind and that it is possible to get rid of all of this garbage. That's the Third Noble Truth and to understand what is the path that will actually get rid of it. If we don't have that confidence, what are we doing with any type of Dharma practice, let alone Tantra practice? So we need to really have that strong confidence that we know what we're aiming for, we know that it's possible. And then we don't start to have doubts later on that, well, I'm practicing and visualizing myself in this really weird form, and this is crazy. What am I doing this for? And that will happen unless we have the firm basis of this preparation, these preparatory practices. So then we need renunciation based on that, that I want to get rid of this uncontrolled, you know, acting under the influence of anger and compulsive, you know, negative behavior, and so on. It just brings more and more pro problems, and it just ge it repeats, generates more and more 
not only in this lifetime, but in future lifetimes, and it's going to just go on and on and on if I don't do something about it. So we need renunciation, that determination to be free of all of this. And then we need to also have very strong concern for others as well. We're not in this alone. And our lives aren't isolated from others. I mean, what are we doing Tantra practice for? It is to be of benefit to others. We want to attain the enlightenment of a Buddha. So bodhicitta is absolutely essential here. What is bodhicitta? Bodhicitta is, uh, I mean, often the misunderstanding is that bodhicitta is just the same as compassion. It's not. Compassion and love are causal factors that lead us to have bodhicitta. But bodhicitta itself is focused on our own enlightenments. Not Buddha's enlightenment, not general enlightenment, but our own individual enlightenments, which have not yet happened, but which can happen on the basis of our Buddha natures. And we're focusing on that, and we want to achieve it in order to benefit everybody, not just ourselves, because our lives are totally interdependent and interconnected with everybody else's. We don't live in an, you know, an isolated vacuum. We are dependent on the kindness of others in order to survive. So that enlightenment, that our own individual enlightenments that we're aiming to attain, that's represented by these Buddha figures. You know, what are we aiming for? We're imagining what has not yet happened, but which can happen on the basis of the Buddha nature factors, and that's what we're doing. So, the practice of Tantra is absolutely tied with bodhicitta. And we visualize and imagine helping everybody, lights going out and freeing everybody from suffering and so on. Well, if you don't have any feeling of love and compassion for others, why are you doing this? This is silly. So, all of these ingredients, it's like preparing your luggage, that you want to be able to use all of this the perfections, the six far-reaching attitudes, paramitas, we want to be generous, give to others, discipline, absolutely necessary. All the vows that are involved with Tantra, if we don't have discipline to be able to keep them, we're never going to be able to help others. It's not just vows, practices that you know, we want to refrain from acting negatively, it's also to act positively, you know, the discipline to help others. These type of things, not just imagine helping everybody, but imagine being generous and so on, but you know, when it comes to actual living people, well, I don't want to get involved. You know, this type of attitude, that's not at all proper practice. Proper practice is in real life, applying things in real life, not just uh, imagining it on our meditation cushion. That's where we rehearse. Rehearsing is very important so that uh, we have some idea of how to do it, but you don't just rehearse, you have to actually perform, and perform in real life. And of course we need to have an understanding of emptiness or voidness, otherwise it's crazy, you know, you think, you know, some sort of schizophrenic person that thinks they are, you know, Jesus Christ or Cleopatra, you know, now I'm Tara, I'm Avalokitesha, you know, I'm Chenrezig. Well, this can be quite schizophrenic, quite crazy, unless we really understand 
you know, what is involved here, that this is, you know, dependently arising on Buddha nature factors and causality and so on, and it's not, you know, actually happening right now. So we have to understand the reality of what we're doing. Otherwise, as I say, misunderstanding it can lead to very serious psychological problems. So, this is our preparation. So then the next question has to do with the uh, unshared preparatory practices, the, what we usually refer to by the term gundro. And these are the sets of uh, 100,000 prostrations and so on. And the misunderstanding is that these are going to bring about miracles. All I have to do is the 100,000 prostrations uh, and, you know, the 100,000 mandala offerings and so on, and all my problems will be gone. And we expect miracles to happen, at least some of us do, and they don't happen. And you get very disillusioned about uh, the whole Dharma practice. And so we have to understand what uh, is the purpose of these Ngundro practices. And we are doing it to build up positive force and weaken negative force. When we talk about karma, karma as a result of our behavior, it builds up positive or negative force or potential. Positive in this sense can be either neurotic positive, like to be a perfectionist, or it can be positive, which is dedicated with bodhicitta, to be able to act as a cause for enlightenment. So we need to differentiate there. And what we want to do with our Ngundro practice is to start to build up more positive neural pathways. If we want to speak in scientific terms, if you think about it, you know, we have this neuroplasticity, you know, that the brain can rewire in a sense. But if you think of the negative pathways that we have, the habits that we've built up, especially if we think in terms of beginningless lifetimes, of acting under the influence of anger and greed and selfishness and so on, naivety, thinking we're the most important one, we should always get our way, you know, ignoring, you know, that other people feel the same way. This type of naivety about uh, reality of situations or the naivety about our effects, you know, I can always treat you, you know, terribly and doesn't matter. You know, I can, you know, we can argue in front of the baby, you know, the baby doesn't understand, so it doesn't matter. This type of uh, naivety. So these neural pathways, which make us act in habitual ways, are incredibly strong, very deeply, deeply ingrained, because we have done these things repeatedly. This is understanding the, you know, on a, on a, on a different level, the disadvantages of samsara, of repeated behavior, uncontrollably recurring behavior. It's karma, uncontrollably recurring, compulsive. So we want to build up positive neural pathways. Well, that's not easy. And that requires a great deal of repetition. That's how you build up neural pathways, is by repetition. 
And so doing something 100,000 times, and 100,000 isn't enough, it's not a magic number, it's just a lot, is what it actually means, <laughs> then that starts to build up a more positive pathway. And that's what we want to do. That's why we do these uh, Ngundro practices, these preparatory practices, to start to build up that uh, positive force, stronger and stronger, and weaken the negative force, the negative potential. Because if we just do this, you know, do our practices in a nonchalant sort of way, well, sometimes I'll meditate, sometimes I won't, and so on, there's not enough repetition. And it's this constant, more and more, repeated, repeated, that starts to build up a more positive pathway. So, we speak usually in terms, in sutra terms, that you have to build up this positive force over three countless eons. Well, countless is just the largest, it's the name of the largest number in the Indian mathematical system, so I usually call it three zillion eons. It's a vague word in English as well. So you have to build up a lot of this, a lot of this positive force that underlines the fact that we've built up beginningless negative force and potential, so we're going to have to put in a tremendous amount of time. This is why, by the way, just uh, uh, an aside, um, if you ever read the Mahayana Sutras, <coughs> Mahayana Sutras are filled with praises to themselves about how many, you know, you recite this mantra and read this mantra and it will purify, you know, 60,000, you know, eons of negative force and, you know, I mean, filled with all these numbers, these fantastic numbers. And you think that this is crazy. I mean, you know, what is this? And you're almost ashamed of it that it's uh, saying these things. But if you think about it, that, you know, I mean, Buddha wasn't stupid. I mean, there, there's a purpose for all of this. And of course, some people will take it totally <coughs> literally. And I don't know about that. But the way that I, uh, you know, I think it makes sense is to give you encouragement. If, you know, you hear that, uh, well, three zillion eons of positive force, and you don't really know what zillion means, countless, what that means. But you think, well, if I recite this, that's going to take care of at least 60,000 of these. So I make a dent in this large number. And that gives you encouragement. And I think it's very important to not go to the, not only not to go to the extreme of that it's going to be very easy, but also to avoid the extreme that it's going to be impossible. And I think these Mahayana Sutras help us to start thinking in very vast numbers. You know, Buddha taught to, you know, it gives these incredible numbers of beings, you know, of all different realms that were there and present. And you can think fairy tale, you know, or you can think uh, this is a way to open your mind to think in, you know, of all sentient beings. You know, to start thinking in very large numbers, 
and very large scope and that it is possible to have this purification to build up positive force but you have to do it and so we have uh, these preliminary practices and it's important not to do them just as a physical exercise with nothing going on in your mind that doesn't uh, uh, produce very much of an effect a little bit of an effect but not very much otherwise you might as well do a hundred thousand push-ups or something like that in the army and that's certainly not what uh, prostration is all about and so and also of course we need pretty good concentration if you're doing it but your mind is all over the place and you just you know wish that your session were over that also is not going to be very effective we want to build up a positive pathway and doing something with our body and our speech at the same time as doing something with our minds is very helpful for avoiding mental wandering you know it's very easy to get into the habit of doing all our practices just in our heads mentally and I'm guilty of that myself so I speak from experience that uh, it's very it's much more difficult to concentrate if you're only doing something with your mind but if you're actually doing something physical at the same time plus reciting something at the same time there isn't that much room left for mental wandering so it really is quite skillful and it's you know to integrate body speech and mind which inevitably obviously as a Buddha we want to have body speech and mind integrated so if we can get into you know the habit of integrating body speech and mind in our practice is very helpful and especially in doing these mundro practices not just the physical and not just reciting blah 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 you know whatever it is that uh, we're reciting in each tradition each Nundro tradition there's going to be something different that you recite that's not you know we shouldn't take it as you know there's only one way of doing it you know if you think of the Dharma and you think of the way that Buddha taught skillful means to different methods to different people then of course there's going to be many variations of uh, doing any type of practice and that's okay you know it's not just mine is right and everybody else's is wrong that's a big, big misunderstanding bringing this competition mentality into our Dharma practice so in doing prostration has to be based on understanding refuge that I'm going in this positive direction Buddha Dharma and Sangha this is you know what I'm making prostration to I want to achieve this you know and I'm paying respect as we did in the beginning I find it's very helpful to think of refuge in terms of uh, and prostration in terms of the result you know those that who have achieved it the path which is our own enlightenment that we're aiming to achieve with all these practices and our Buddha nature factors the basis that will enable us to attain that then we show respect so mind is focused on uh, why we're doing what we're doing Vajrasattva has to be based on renunciation of the first two noble truths what am I trying to purify with Vajrasattva 
suffering and its causes and understanding them and confidence in the third and fourth noble truths that it is possible to actually get rid of all this negative potential and I'm going to do it by applying opponent forces and the Vajrasattva practice is a provisional purification the only thing that will really get rid of this negative potential is our understanding of emptiness or voidness so that we don't repeat negative behavior. You can sort of clean the slate with Vajrasattva, but that doesn't guarantee that you're not going to act negatively again. So we need to have full confidence in the Four Noble Truths. And so we apply you know, opponents, you know, forces of Vajrasattva and so on to purify. Otherwise, Vajrasattva, I mean, what are you doing? You're just reciting you know, a hundred syllables, that doesn't make any sense. So we have this, and we visualize, imagine the purification occurring in a graphic type of way. Mandala offering is very important to do that with love and compassion and generosity. You know, we're offering, we want to offer, you know, the most conducive circumstances to everyone, so that uh, everybody can attain enlightenment. If you think of what we actually recite in the mandala offering. I mean, the traditional, the, the standard thing that you recite, you know, the Sashi Bugi, you know, the, the, the thing that, you re, that often we recite in Tibetan. Uh, I translate it as, by directing an offering to the Buddha fields, this base, anointed with fragrant waters, strewn with flowers, and decked with Mount Meru, for islands, a sun and a moon, may all those who wander be led to pure lands. What in the world does that mean? And what it means is that may everybody be able to practice in a pure land. You know, we just visualize in a traditional Indian way with Mount Meru and so on. That's not the point. The point is we are imagining and offering to everyone the most conducive circumstances for being able to attain liberation and enlightenment. May everybody have a pure, you know, a pure land. May everything be perfect for everybody to be able to practice 24-7 the Dharma. It's not that just you know, hang out in a pure land and enjoy yourself, but you're practicing 24-7 the Dharma and hearing teachings and so on 24-7 so that they can attain enlightenment the best. So we're practicing generosity. May everybody be able to have this. Otherwise, Bandala offering, I mean, we're just a child playing, you know, with these rings and the, the, the rice and, and so on. It doesn't make any sense. So that has to uh, be there. And then guru yoga. Guru yoga only makes sense when we have bodhicitta. You know, otherwise it's personality cult and it's pretty weird and can go way off in, uh, you know, uh, a very negative direction. We want to gain inspiration in terms of body, speech, and mind with, you know, usually it's the uh, uh, founder of our tradition, you know, some great figure. And what are we doing? You know, this is representing our not yet attained enlightenment. We want to attain that with bodhicitta. And so we see this reflected in the guru, 
And may I have the inspiration to be able to attain that enlightened state that you represent. You know, like that. Guru, Jidam, you know, Buddha. This type of thing. Otherwise, Guru Yoga also is, you know, it's not Guru worship. It's not what it, it is. So, these basic, unshared, preliminary, you know, preparatory practices are all based on the shared ones. They're all based on forethoughts that turn the mind to the Dharma with refuge and bodhicitta and the perfections and, you know, these things that are based on these forethoughts that turn the mind to the Dharma. So this, I think, is very important. So, Nundro is not just a miracle cure for your problems. It's not just paying your nasty dues so you can join the in-crowd and get to the good stuff. You know, you just want to get it over with as quickly as possible. And it's not with the idea that I'm a sinner and this is my penance, my punishment that I have to do in order to make up for my sins so that Buddha will forgive me. That's complete misunderstanding of uh, the Buddhist path. So, try to understand what is the purpose of the Gundro. It's to build up more positive neural pathways, not just of going down on the ground and, you know, prostrating. That's not, that's not the point. But the mental state that we're trying to do and the physical thing that we're doing and the verbal thing that we're saying is an aid to keep us focused on that mental state. So, that is uh, very important. Then, the next thing is uh, taking initiations and undertaking tantric practices prematurely. Again, when uh, initiations are given, it's important to not just go to it because everybody else is going to it and we feel that we have to follow everybody else. Otherwise, you know, people think badly of us, you know, well, why aren't you going type of thing. So not just uh, uh, like that, that we go, but uh, it's very important and it's stressed over and over again in the teachings. Examine the teacher and examine the specific tantric practice. Is this something that we really want to do? Are we ready to do it? Is this a teacher that I can trust? Is this a teacher that I have confidence in? Don't just go by the teacher's big name or they're being charismatic. Hitler was charismatic. That doesn't mean that you follow somebody just because they're charismatic and they have a big name. And not everybody is going to feel a close connection to every teacher, to every great teacher even. We're individuals. You have to feel inspired by the teacher and feel some sort of connection with the teacher. Otherwise, it doesn't really work. And although other people might feel a connection with this particular great Lama who's giving an initiation, you might not, and that's okay. That's okay. So don't feel obligated that you need to go to initiations just because they're there. 
just because they're happening. Now, what is stated, you know, in the teachings is that uh, if you aren't prepared, and we take initiation, we get into tantra practice, and we, we practice tantra without bodhicitta, some developed stage of bodhicitta doesn't have to be, you know, what's called unlabored bodhicitta that, you know, you don't have to build it up, you just have it all the time. <coughs> but unless you have some deep level of bodhicitta to practice tantra without it, just results in being reborn as a ghost in the form of one of these tantric deities. Why? Because the positive potential that you might be building up is not dedicated to enlightenment. So it's just samsaric positive potential. Positive samsaric karma is going to lead to samsaric rebirth. So you're imagining that you're in the form of this deity, and so you'll be reborn as a ghost in the, as the form of this deity. So that's pretty horrifying if you think about it. And so don't really get involved until it's, you know, you really feel prepared. Now that doesn't mean that you don't have to go. I mean, that you can't attend these initiations. It can be a very inspiring thing. But uh, if you attend an initiation, you only, and this is said, you know, by many great traditional, you know, in the literature, traditional masters, that unless you take the vows, there's no initiation. You haven't received the initiation. You have to take the vows. The bodhicitta vows are there, bodhisattva vows, I should say, in all classes of tantra, and in the two higher classes of tantra, the tantric vows. And just being there and not knowing what's going on, you haven't taken the vows. I mean, this is a mis misunderstanding that people have. You know, well, I was there, I didn't know what was happening, there was no translation, or I didn't understand the translator, and now I'm stuck with this. <laughs> That's not the case. Unless you consciously take the vows, you haven't received them. So you can be there as what His Holiness the Dalai Lama calls a neutral observer. Neutral observer is perfectly fine. We Westerners call that going for the blessings. So that's okay. Nothing wrong with that. But don't feel that because you've been there just for the blessings, just for the inspiration as a neutral observer, that now you've taken the vows and you've taken the commitments and are going to you know, now practice Tantra. And to take the vows, <laughs> as one of my teachers said, that uh, it's very fortunate that there aren't more sets of vows we, because we would take them and not keep them also. <laughs> so if we take the vows, we need to be very serious that we're going to try to keep them and not see the vows as punishment or restrictions, but see them as very helpful guidelines of these are the boundaries, the limits that I don't want to go beyond. They're going to give a certain shape to my behavior. And that's very helpful to have some sort of guideline of 
what type of behavior or attitude would be the most detrimental to my being able to help others? So like with the Bodhisattva vows, the first one to praise yourself and put down others, belittle others because of attachment, you know, jealousy, this type of thing. You know, we're always saying, What's that? If we're always saying, you know, I'm the best and everybody else is no good, people don't really trust you. So then they think, well, something is wrong there. You know, they're trying to, to, to sell us something, sell us the, themselves as the teacher, and so on. So this is not helpful. And if we're saying bad things about this person, well, maybe they'll be saying bad things about me when I'm not there. So it causes people not to trust us. So that would prevent us from being able to help others. We have to understand the, uh, the vows. Or in Tantra vows, these are not easy. Meditate on the correct view of emptiness six times a day. Well, if you don't understand or at least have some idea of the correct view, how can you do that? So these are serious considerations to take when we attend the, uh, uh, an initiation. Are we doing it? Have we really examined, do I really want to do this practice? You know, that's the whole point of taking an initiation to a specific practice is that we want to do that practice. Otherwise, why are you there? You can be there for the blessings, for the inspiration, that's fine. But you're not really there to be able to then engage in the practice. And it could be that we are not planning to engage in the practice immediately, but let's say there's a very old Lama and someone we have tremendous respect for and they might not be around so long until we are ready to actually practice it. So now I will you know, plant the potential to be able to do, to do it later on. That's okay as well but we're going to have to keep the vows all the way up until then. So, very important to understand what we're doing with, uh, you know, taking these uh, initiations. So, with bodhicitta, as I said, without bodhicitta, it builds up causes to be reborn as a ghost in the form of these uh, Buddha figures. With bodhicitta, we're dedicating positive force of this so that, again, we come back to karma. That instead of, in rebirth, you know, being reborn with a samsaric body, with all its limitations, we want to assume the form of the body of a yidam. Yidam is a Buddha figure, or meditational deity, sometimes it's called. Why? There's a lot of misunderstanding about that, you know? I mean, isn't this pretty weird, you know? That, is this what I want to do? is to be, you know, some figure with all these arms and faces and legs and so on and holding all these different things, you know. What is that? Now, form body of a Buddha. In other words, the form that a Buddha appears in is to fulfill the aims of others, right? Dharmakaya is to fulfill Buddha's own aims, so being omniscient, having equal love for everybody, you know, so... This is, uh, you know, 
fulfills Buddha's aims to be able to help others, but then the body is how you actually help others. So the form of these yidams, these uh, Buddha figures, is a method to be able to benefit others. So how does it benefit others? Every arm, every face, every leg represents a different insight, a different realization or understanding in the basic teachings. So if it's six arms, that's the six perfections. You know, this type of, uh, of thing, you know, three faces, body, speech, and mind, you know, there are many, many levels that uh, everything represents. And these Buddha figures are forms that help us to integrate all the various teachings and have the, be mindful of them at the same time, which is what we want to be able to do as a Buddha. So we are manifesting in these various forms as methods that others can practice as. I think this is you know, quite important to uh, understand. And then rather than uh, you know, the uh, positive potential, you know, samsaric one, you know, just you know, a nice environment, we want it to ripen in the you know, perfect environment that is ideal for practice, you know, mandala. Mandala, every architectural feature, again, represents some aspect of the Buddhist path. So it helps us to keep mindful of all these things. And uh, rather than compulsively repeating samsaric habits, we want to have the enlightening activities of a Buddha that actually is helping others and inspiring others. And rather than our ordinary happiness, which would come from samsaric positive potential, we want this blissful awareness of a Buddha that is not associated with any confusion and has no limitations and so on. So it's very important to, if we're going to undertake Tantra practice and take an initiation to have some understanding of what Tantra is all about. We need to have confidence in the Tantra method in order to actually undertake it, not just on the basis of, well, my teacher said it was pretty good or the propaganda that it's easy or fast. So I want you know, a quick thing because I don't have so much time. That sort of thing. So some basic understanding of what we're getting involved with. And for this, I always find the teachings of the seven Harya gems very helpful. I really like this uh, uh, presentation. The seven Arya gems, Atisha emphasizes it quite a lot. Uh, first of all, Confidence, you know, sometimes it's translated as faith, but that really doesn't convey it. You have to have confidence in the teachings. We don't have confidence in the Tantra methods and that it's going to work, and confidence that we can actually achieve enlightenment through them. It's not going to work. So we need that confidence in, our, in what we're attaining, that it's attainable, and that we can actually do it. And then the second one is discipline. So, as I said, without taking the vows and having the discipline of you know, refraining from negative behavior, engaging in positive, constructive behavior, the discipline to actually meditate and do all the practices, there's no tantra. And the, then the, the next Arya gem is generosity.
So you have to give your time. You have to put time into this. Generosity in terms of, you know, you're imagining that you're helping everybody. So that has to be there. You know, we can't expect a rush job. It's going to take a lot of time and effort. And then listening. We have to get the full and proper instructions, think about them so that we have confidence in our understanding. The more that we have listened, and listen means studying, basically, whether it's reading, whether it's uh, whatever, so that we have all the Dharma information, and not just information, but then we digest it, we think about it, understand it, so that we actually have confidence in it. Then we can put it together with the Tantra methods. And then there is a sense of moral self-dignity. So you practice in a hidden way. You don't transgress your vows. You know, I, um, you have enough respect for yourself based on Buddha nature that you're not going to act in some crazy way. And you're going to keep these Tantra practices very, stresses it over and over again. Keep it you know, sometimes it's translated secret. Well, that, that also doesn't give the right flavor. But really, the connotation that I think is the most helpful is keep it private. You know, you don't advertise to people, you know, what you're doing. You don't put up these, you know, pictures in, you know, your, your room that, you know, everybody goes into. And so they look at it and they say, oh, well, this, you know, what's that? Or they start to make fun of you that you're doing something really weird or strange, that you know, nothing's going to discourage you more than other people making fun of what you're doing and criticizing. So keep it private. It's nobody else's business what we're doing with you know, our practice. You know, and there's all these vows that you know, is part of the initiation, which says you know, we're going to keep the practice and keep it hidden. Keep it private. So take that seriously. And it's, you know, scribes in the initiation all the terrible things that will happen if we don't keep the, these hidden. And we can take these uh, things quite literally, you know, if our head smashes and so on. Or you can also understand it in terms of it completely destroys all your confidence and energy in doing your practices in doing this method, if everybody is making fun of you and criticizing you. So you don't want that. Keep it private. This is something which you need to be able to really cherish as something very special that we're doing. It's very precious. So you don't just advertise it. You don't have, you know, Kalachakra t-shirt, you know, stuff like that. And then care for how our actions reflect on others, especially your teacher and your lineage. You know, if we, you know, are practicing Tantra, but then, you know, we you know, get drunk and we, you know, cause, you know, get in fights and cause all sorts of, you know, nasty things. Especially, you know, if we are, we can't get along with our parents, you know, take care of them. These sort of things reflects badly on Buddhism, reflects badly on our teachers. 
So this is very, you know, big basis of ethics in Buddhism is the sense of moral self-dignity. You know, sometimes I ask my students, why don't you go out and steal? You know, why? You know, is it because you're afraid of going to hell? And nobody thinks that. But usually it's that it just doesn't feel right. You know, it doesn't, you know, I wouldn't do something like that. Why? Because you have enough self-respect. This is this factor that they're talking about. You have enough self-respect that you wouldn't act in that way. That, and then how it reflects on my teacher, my lineage, and others. There's consideration for, for that. And then the last Arya gem is this discriminating awareness of emptiness or voidness in terms of myself as, you know, practicing this, what I'm practicing, and the practice itself. All these things arise dependent on each other. It's not that, you know, I'm this, you know, horrible worm down here and the teacher is so wonderful up there and the practices are, you know, so special and stuff like that. The thing is to just do it without being so, you know, self-conscious, you know, oh, I'm so great, I'm such a great yogi, I'm doing this or I'm doing that, or I'm so terrible, you know, that uh, I'm such a bad practitioner and so on. Don't make these, you know, dualistic thing, you know, just do it with an understanding that everything is going to arise cause and effect. Gets back to our basic teachings on karma. Everything happens according to cause and effect. Dependent arising. And then the last thing that I wanted to mention was thinking that the most important part of Tantra practice is doing the rituals and visualizing all the details correctly. This is, can be quite a mistake especially in the beginning, if we're wondering about, you know, all the jewelry that the deity is wearing and what it actually looks like and all the tiny little details of that. And you can't really get all of that going because it's impossible as, you know, in the beginning to get all the details. Then you get totally discouraged. And that doesn't help at all to get discouraged, you know. And if we're just doing a ritual with nothing going on in our heads, you know, it's just like a child playing doctor or, you know, playing house. We're just playing. And that doesn't have uh, very much of an effect either. So although we need to have some general idea of what we're doing, some general idea of the details, don't get obsessed with the details. You know, that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is our understanding of what we're doing. And in, you know, the highest class of Tantra, we want to transform this whole death, bardo, and rebirth process. So we understand how it happens. And we want to, instead of, you know, uncontrollably recurring rebirth happening, that in a, a sort of parallel way, we you know, arise in the form of a Buddha, an actual Buddha. 
That's the essential part of the practice. And in many meditation manuals and instructions, says that uh, in the beginning, you know, there are two factors that are involved in any visualization. Uh, visualization means to imagine. Don't imagine that it, don't think that it's just visual. That's a misleading term to just call it visualization because we are imagining, you know, all our senses, imagining, you know, everything. So, use our imagination. It's a very strong power, very strong force that we have is our imagination. That's, we harness that in uh, Tantra. And so, we uh, <coughs> I forgot where that was leading. <laughs> we want to be able to transform what's going on and use our imagination. And we use our imagination. Oh yeah, I forget, remember. We, uh, in the meditation instructions, it says that, uh, uh, you know, there are two things, two factors which are involved in a visualization. There is the uh, clarity. Clarity means to actually have something appear in our imagination and pride of the deity. Pride of the deity means that we label me, you know, we impute me on this visualization. So that's with bodhicitta, that this represents the enlightenment that I haven't achieved yet, but I can achieve on the basis of the Buddha nature factors that are part of my mental continuum. And just as I can impute me on, you know, my ordinary form right now, I can impute me later on, you know, way down the line on my mental continuum and I'm going to be a Buddha. And so on the basis of that, feeling that, you know, I am this, but the understanding of voidness, not solidly identifying, you know, with this, that this is going to arise dependently on causes and conditions and so on. So in terms of that pride of the deity, you know, if this is, you know, me, this is not just something crazy, and it's not happening literally right now. And the clarity of all the details says that the pride of the deity is the most important. Visualization can be quite vague, but the important thing is to feel that I am this. This is something that I can attain. And as your concentration increases, the details will come into focus. So you need to know the details, but don't be obsessed with trying to, you know, I can't get all the jewelry right, and there are too many things that are held in the arms, and I can't, you know, I can't remember that. This will drive you crazy. And it's very interesting when you think in terms of death, the moment of death. What would, you know, because you're practicing to, uh, you know, what will happen when you die, to be able to die, you know, stay in the clear light, you know, state of the mind, you know, the full understanding of emptiness and arise in the form of the deity and all this stuff. Well, that's very wonderful. 
But as His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, unless you are super trained to be able to do that, it's just going to freak you out when you're dying that, oh, and I can't remember all the details and what I'm holding in this hand and that hand, and you're going to blow it. You know, <laughs> you're going to you know, ruin that whole opportunity of being able to die in a calm, clear state of mind because you're worried about all the details of what you're holding in your hands and your visualization. Much better to focus you know, with bodhicitta, love and compassion, may I be able to continue to have a precious human rebirth so that I can continue to work toward enlightenment and benefit others. And think of your gurus. And die like that. You know, you've built up I mean, unless you're super trained. If you're super trained, fine. But most of us aren't. So this is a very, very helpful advice. And it fits into this whole thing of don't think that the most important thing is getting all the details correct. So we need renunciation. You know, the three principle paths, renunciation, bodhicitta, and the understanding of emptiness or voidness. Why renunciation? What we are renouncing, renunciation means that we are determined to be free of something. Tibetan term literally means to, you're very strongly determined, determined to do something. You've become certain about it. So I want to get rid of Samsara, basically samsaric, and my limitations. So what we want to get rid of is our ordinary appearances. You know, the mind projects all sorts of garbage, of duality or, you know, whatever, and we believe it. And that's what we're renouncing in Tantra, is that ordinary appearance-making of the mind and believing that it corresponds to reality and that we and everything have self-established existence. It's established all by itself, you know, out of context. I think the easiest example, the most clear example, is a website. I mean, I'm involved very much with the internet and a website. So you think of a website, you know, you get something on your phone and self-established. It looks as though, bam, it just is there. It comes out of nowhere. And it's complete all in itself, and there it is. Self-established. It doesn't appear as though it depended on thousands and tens of thousands of hours of work <laughs> by, you know, a hundred people or more to make this thing and the amount of money and time that this took doesn't appear like that at all, does it? Why? It's not from that side, it's from our minds. Our minds are limited. And it just makes it appear like that. So the actuality is dependent arising. It has arisen dependently on all these causes and conditions and all the parts, you know, inside the phone and you know, these sort of things. It's, it's amazing how much it depends on. 
This is part of also the teachings on karma. Things don't arise from just one cause. They arise from a whole combination of causes. Buddha said it nicely, you know, a bucket of water is not filled by the first drop or the last drop. It's filled by a collection of all the drops. So whatever happens is based on, you know, arises dependently on, you know, countless causes and conditions. Not just self-established by itself, you know, there it is, under its own power. So we want to renounce that appearance, you know, that our minds make that uh, appearance. You know, it's only the Dalai Lama is always uh, very interested in uh, quantum physics, has a lot of these discussions with the uh, scientists, and with quantum physics, it's not exactly analogous, but I think there's a certain thing in there. You have a quantum field, which means that, you know, there are all these possibilities. And it's only with the interaction with an observer that the field collapses into it's either a particle or it's a wave or the particle is here or the particle is there. Well, like that, you know, quantum physics can only collapse once. But uh, here, it's like we have this uh, quantum field, you know, of dependent arising. This is what a Buddha perceives. Of everything, you know, all causes and conditions, past, present, future, all beings, and so on. So Buddha perceives the whole thing, you know, dependent arising simultaneously. The omniscient mind of a Buddha. Our limited minds collapse it into just one thing, dependent on our projections. A lot of it is projection, dependent on our hardware. If you think about it, what we see through the hardware of this type of eye and what a fly sees through the multi-prism you know, eye of, a, of an insect. Very, very different. What's the reality? What we see. You know? <laughs> what we see, how we collapse this field, is dependent on what we see it through. Isn't it? So, like that, the same thing with our conceptual frameworks and so on. So, our limited minds collapse this field into the self-established existence with an awful lot of projections onto it. You know, of I'm no good, or, you know, this is terrible, and we complain, and all this sort of stuff. Now, what we want to do, so we renounce that. And we want instead to collapse the field into a mandala and these Buddha figures these yidams and all these deities, because that's very useful for others to be able to practice with it. So as a Buddha, we want to demonstrate this, to offer this to others, that you can use this because all these different arms and legs represent the different parts of the path. So it helps you to integrate it all simultaneously. So, you know, once you collapse it, you know, it's, it's a deceptive appearance because it appears as though that's the only thing. But we want to renounce the ordinary appearance 
making of our minds and use it instead to collapse it into you know, pure land. These various visualizations and things that uh, we do. So this renunciation is very, very uh, essential. And bodhicitta, what we are visualizing, what we're imagining, is what we're aiming for. Because that represents enlightenment, our own enlightenment. That hasn't attained, happened yet. But bodhicitta, we want to attain it, we're aiming to attain it in order to benefit others. So by practicing now, we're rehearsing. So that makes a you know, stronger potential to achieve it more efficiently. And then the understanding of voidness, that that state doesn't exist already. It's not sitting inside us. That's a big misconception. That Buddha nature, you know, just sitting inside my head, waiting to pop out. It's there already. You know, I just didn't realize it. I'm already enlightened. Well, that's not correct understanding. You know, there's a difference between what is happening now and what's not yet happening, what, but can happen. It's not that it's impossible. Can happen. You know, it's not that it's non-existent. Tomorrow, we can think about tomorrow, can't we? Tomorrow isn't happening today. But you can't say there's no tomorrow, that tomorrow doesn't exist. So there's a different, big difference between something doesn't exist and something's not happening now, isn't there? So our future enlightenments, they're not happening right now, but it's not something that's totally non-existent. It's not going to come from nowhere, and it's not just sitting there in my head waiting to pop out. So it's very important, and it's not going to come from nothing. So it doesn't exist in this dualistic way, you know, of totally separate from my mind. You know, the mental continuum, all these potentials, you know, that I'm over here and enlightenment goes over there, and I can't possibly attain it. We have to understand this dependent arising. Things arise dependent on many causes and conditions, and that's the only way that our enlightenment can happen, and the only way that we can practice Tantra in a meaningful way is if we understand what's going on with it, and that we're going to have to put in the hard work and be prepared for it. And it's not something that we start out with. It's not for beginners. It's quite an advanced type of practice. And so if we're already involved in it and we feel that we are, you know, really not ready or it's premature, well, make more effort in the basic teachings. Basic teachings, you shouldn't think of that as just, you know, well, kid stuff. The basic teachings are what really transform our lives. You know, the whole point of it is to put it into practice in our lives. Not to just rehearse on the meditation cushion. And that's the real practice, is life. You know, difficult situations. To practice patience, tolerance, understanding. 
understand when somebody is acting in a very horrible way that that has arisen from causes and conditions. And that I'm not responsible for everything that happens in the universe. That's a complete myth, isn't it? Or that I can control everything. I will get everything under control. We can. We can contribute. But everything arises dependent on many, many causes and conditions. So this is what I wanted to present about Tantra, some basic misunderstandings and just some basic advice about how to make our uh, practice meaningful and effective. So we have quite a bit of time left over and if there are other topics that you would like to, you know, ask me to speak about, other types of misunderstanding areas concerning spiritual teachers, concerning, you know, whatever, please ask. Can you uh, please use the microphone? I don't hear very well. When I stopped smoking, I got very interested in pranayama, pranayama. And uh, because I was not smoking anymore. And, uh, and you got very excessive what? I got very interested in pranayama, pranayama, pranayama. Breath. Breath. Yes. Then there is there one breath for Nirmanakaya, one for his because I believe that the angels, it's not for the angels, they take in Dharmakaya with the nose. <laughs> I don't know if it's true, but you get very blessed if you think that it is the third bread, the Dharmakaya bread. The Shambhakaya bread and the Nirmanakaya bread, the three functions. Are there, so the question is, is there such a thing as Nirmanakaya breath, Sambhogakaya breath, and Dharmakaya breath. I must say that I've never heard no, any but, teachings like that. No, no, but I, I, have, I have some contact with angels. <laughs> so no, <laughs> Well, there is a, a great deal of practices that can be done with the breath. And there are you know, there's the five Buddha families. And uh, the five Buddha families have to do, I mean, there are many, many different levels of what the five different Buddha families deal with. But one of them has to do with the breath. And uh, there is a certain type of uh, extrasensory perception which is developed in terms of uh, when you're breathing, the part of the nostril that it goes through whether it's the top, right, left side, or bottom, or center, yes. is associated with one of the five Dhani Buddhas. Yes. And by noticing how your breath is going, how you're breathing in a certain situation, or if you do this as a prognostication, you know, you ask a question, and you see how the breath is flowing, then that's associated with one of the Buddha families, and that gives you some sort of answer. So there is that type of Practice, that's the closest that I've ever heard yes, of something I, like that. I believe that human being is not fully developed. 
the third eye and the third the third, third heart and the third the third third, uh, third breath and the and the fifth wheel that the, that the Baptist Saint John had the fifth wheel. Well, the third eye is always referred to, uh, you know, it's over here, and that represents the uh, the eye of wisdom. So it's not really uh, taken very literally, and also in terms of the channels, rather than go, breath going through the right or the left channel, you want it to go through the central channel, so the third eye represents that. So these things are not to be taken literally. Well, as I say, it can, the breath can lead to many other yes. deeper insights. Someone else? Yeah. Thank you. A uh, question about uh, language. In Tibetan Buddhism, course, there are many practices, individual practices, and uh, communal practices, and uh, there's a question of using uh, Tibetan language or using uh, your native language. Some people stress importance of using your own native language as more powerful or more close to your heart, so things should be um, uh, translated. Others uh, suggest that uh, Tibetan language has uh, some particular spiritual resonance or some qualities or the effort to understand the Tibetan language and use it as a tool for spiritual practice should not be underestimated, it should be um, emphasized. Uh, what are your thoughts on this issue? Well, in terms of the language of practice, first of all, Tibetans do not do their practices in Sanskrit. They do it in <laughs> Tibetan. So the Tibetans already have done, you know, translated everything. You know, some mantras they keep in uh, Sanskrit, but aside from uh, mantras and a few names of flowers and things like that, everything is translated into uh, Tibetan. Uh, the one great Lama who emphasized very much doing all the practices in Tibetan was uh, the previous Kalu Rinpoche. And Kala Rinpoche, uh, uh, you know, insisted that everybody do their practices in Tantra, in uh, Tibetan, because he had many Dharma centers in different countries, and he felt that uh, if everybody was doing it in the same language, namely Tibetan, then people could practice together from all these different centers in all these different countries. So there was. It, was, it wasn't that the Tibetan language is magical or stuff like that, but it was on a very practical level for building a, uh, a community. But His Holiness the Dalai Lama always says that uh, it's best to understand what you're doing, and we can understand it best in our own language, but our language should also be nice. <laughs> you know, it should be poetical and rhythm, rhythmic, which is not so easy in uh, many languages, so that it is, it flows easily when we recite something. If we're doing it as a recitation practice, or if we're doing it as a text, we need to understand something. 
But Zongsa uh, Kenzi Rinpoche put it really very, very nicely. He said that uh, if the Tibetans had to do, he said this in Germany, so he said if the Tibetans had to do all their practices in German, which was written phonetically in Tibetan letters, he doubts that any Tibetans would do any of the practices. <laughs> and I think that's very, very helpful to look at it, you know, from the other point of view of how weird it is, you know, to insist that uh, we um, recite things in this language that we don't know. So there are pros and cons of, uh, you know, each point of view of whether we all do it in one language or we do it in uh, our own individual languages. But uh, my own personal experience since I um, studied Tibetan and understand Tibetan is that uh, in the early part of my Dharma practice, the early, earlier years, I did everything in Tibetan. But then uh, because time was short, I you know did it very quickly in my head, and it turned into being almost you know just a practice of turning the pages, rather than actually doing anything, you know, adding any meaning into you know what I was uh, you know speed reading in Tibetan. So after a while, I switched to English because uh, that had uh, more meaning. But I think no matter what language we are doing it in, because now I speed read in English. And it also you know, now becomes an exercise of turning pages. And I think the most challenging thing is, uh, I mean, if your main problem isn't mental wandering, you know, that, of course, is the biggest challenge. But if that isn't the most serious problem, the next level of problem is actually putting any meaning into what you're saying or what you're reading. That's very difficult to actually do and to do it quickly. You know, Sirka Rinpoche always used to say, you know, the entire graded stages of the path you should be able to do in the time when you put one foot in the saddle and the stirrup of the saddle, the time it takes to put your leg over the horse. You should be able to go through the whole thing like that. And he said, death doesn't wait for you to, you know, you know, settle your posture and go through things nice and slowly. When death comes, you have to be able to get everything, you know, together instantly. And so this is what we're aiming to be able to, to do. Not only at death, but in life, you know, there's a situation that comes up. You know, somebody starts, you know, yelling at you or something like that. And you can't just, you know, well, wait a second, I have to sit, you know, in the proper position. I have to count my breath first for a while and calm down. And then, you know, go through this whole line, you know, you've been my mother in previous lives and all of that. And then finally, we have, you know, patience. And, you know, I wish you well, you know, this type of thing. You don't have time for that. It has to be instant. So putting meaning into what we're actually doing in these recitation practices since uh, 
if we're doing Tantra, a lot of the practice is these recitation practices. The recitation is like the script of an opera that, you know, now, if you, the four immeasurables and the refuge and all the mundra is there in the beginning part of any sadhana the longer forms of the, the sadhanas everything is there there's always a uh, vajrasattva there's always guru yoga there's always a mandala you know, there's everything is there so I mean to be able to actually generate that state of mind and not just go you know and turn the page that's where the real practice is so whether you're doing it in Tibetan or you're doing it in your own language, it's quite possible to do it, do it with no meaning in both, <laughs> both those languages. Just because it's your own language doesn't mean that you're adding any meaning to it. So that's where the real work is. And that's tough. That's tough. To actually feel it. Not just, you know, now I feel love, and then you go on. You know, do you really feel love? It's pretty hard. Yeah. Um, so my question is about the group or collective karma. Um, recently, with uh, the events in uh, Burma, um, and then some events happening uh, more locally, I've become much more interested in uh, how um, group karma, or for example, we as Buddhists, up until recently, being a Buddhist means, oh, you're probably very nice uh, to um, like my mother, or yeah, like, oh, no problem uh, being Buddhist because, oh, everybody knows, you know, the Lama is nice, and but. A uh, shift uh, in the neighborhood is uh, occurring, and I'm wondering. Uh, like most of Buddhism I relate to is very like tool-like, like it's applicable, not just curiosity. So that's fascinating, and I'm wondering how to relate to our collective karma, uh, specifically Buddhist collective karma, but also like Norwegian country karma. How do we relate to this in a useful way? What's our responsibility as Tibetan Buddhists? Uh, we are connected to what's happening in Burma in some way, but until I was confronted with it recently, I, it, it never even occurred to me that somebody would uh, just assume I was like that. Uh, uh, do you, uh, you understand well, yes, I, I understand. So the question is uh, collective karma and our responsibility in terms of that. First of all, there's the myth that all Buddhists are nice people. You know, all, any group of people. You can't you know, say that everybody is this or that. You know, we're all individuals. You can have a you know, certain data analysis of how many people, you know, what percentage are nice, and when are they nice, you know. So this isn't uh, terribly um, helpful. And in terms of individual responsibility, as I was saying, uh, the basis of uh, Buddhist ethics, if 
you look in the Abhidharma, the list of mental factors, you know, what is there in every constructive act, which mental factors are always present. It's this ethical uh, sense of, of self, moral self-dignity, ethical self-dignity, and care for how your actions reflect on the larger group, whether it's your parents or Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism. So my actions reflect on others, and their actions reflect on me because I'm a Buddhist. So in that sense, we are not responsible for their behavior, but their behavior reflects on Buddhism, and I follow Buddhism. So this is very damaging, for sure. But just because somebody says they're a Buddhist, just because they say they're Christian, doesn't mean that they follow you know, the teachings of Jesus. And just because somebody you know, is born as a, as a Buddhist, you know, that's also a myth that all monks are you know, enlightened and they all, you know, all, all Tibetans are Buddhas and stuff like that. This is, you know, people are people. And everybody has their own samsaric garbage to deal with. So there's that. Now in terms of collective karma, you know, I mean, again, so are we responsible? I mean, what you know, you're asking, are we responsible for how they act in Myanmar? Well, no, we're not responsible for that. Are people going to say that reflects on Buddhism and therefore it reflects on me? Well, sure. But uh, you can't really defend their, their behavior. You can explain it in terms of well, religion isn't the only factor, you know, these are different ethnic groups and, you know, there's history and all this other stuff that's involved with uh, Bengalis and, uh, you know, Burmese that are involved here and the history of, you know, that area, Arakan, and, you know, I mean, there's, there are a lot of factors that go into it. It's not so simple. But, uh, uh, you know, I don't excuse it. I don't say that it is, you know, great. I don't condone it. But don't think that this, ref that this actually is, that they're following the Buddhist teachings in doing this. So you just explained that these are ordinary people. Like His Holiness says in, you know, with regard to Islam, it's the same thing, you know, just because there are some, you know, mischievous people, as he says, you know, they're, there are mischievous people in every religious group. And, you know, to, to say that everybody is a terrorist because of, you know, a small group of people that don't really represent the religious teachings at all is a mistake. So it helps us to not project that onto, you know, people of other religions when they have, you know, uh, misdeeds in their community. So I think just explaining to them, you know, yes, this is terrible. I agree. And Buddhists, we condemn that. And you have to understand that it's a very complex situation. It's not just, you know, good against evil type of, uh, of thing. You know, what else to do? Yeah. But I think your question deals more with, with uh, collective responsibility rather than, 
you know, collective karma. Collective karma is, is another topic. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, why, you know, this group of people are, you know, injured in a hurricane. You know, yes, that's, I, that's, that's I something else. Yeah. Um, my question is uh, in, on the field of non-drop. Um, my sense is that uh, you've been explaining many, <laughs> many aspects of it, but the uh, one I, I sort of miss is, is the, the biography or the numtars of uh, people who are in your field of um, in an Andro refuge tree, for example. Uh, would you put any emphasis on, for example, in our tradition we have the, the karma paths. So mm -hmm. you're supposed to visualize the, every karma path from the 1st to the, the 17th or mm -hmm. the 16th. Uh, but if you don't know anything about them, then it's sort of, it's, uh, it's, um, it's hard to relate to. So I don't know if you have any comments on Therefore, that. Therefore, it follows that you need to learn about the biography of the various karmapas. Remember, one of the seven Arya gems was listening, you know, hearing, listening to the teachings. Get the teachings. If you're going to, if you are, you know, prepare. If you're going to visualize and gain inspiration from the line of karmapas, obviously you need to know about the line of karmapas and who these, these great lamas were. Then you can find them inspiring. Otherwise, it doesn't have any meaning to it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the only solution. Well, learn about it. Yeah. Also, I think it's very helpful to realize that you know, these guru trees and so on, there's so many different varieties of it. You know, so many great lamas, you know, both Indian and Tibetan masters, so whichever line we find inspiring <coughs> is fine. It's not that there's only one. Yeah. yeah. Um, my question is very much in line with, uh, with the Previous, not the previous one. Yes. Yeah, this uh, uh, connected to collective karma. Yeah. Um, I've, I very much agree with you, your comment about, uh, uh, in relation to Barba, a manual. Yeah. But we as a Buddhist, hasn't the time come to talk to teach, to preach more about collective karma, institutional karma, uh, so that we can be more, um, uh, more close to the real world by using Buddhism, Buddhism values like compassion, peace, and these things, because in many respects, when you compare to different with other religion like uh, philosophy, uh, Buddhism, then Buddhism is more or less more found to be more peaceful, more compassionate, uh, more scientific. Maybe uh, hasn't the time come? 
uh, then my feeling is that we are more focusing on the individual plan. Hmm. That is my real conclusion question, actually. Right. Well, in terms of uh, collective issues that we have to think on a more global, yes. universal uh, level, I think this is not so much a, an issue of collective karma as it is of uh, dependent arising. That uh, we don't just exist as individuals by ourselves, but uh, what happens in the world arises dependently on what each person does and the interaction between people. And so we can contribute to that. But we need to realize that you know, there's so many factors that uh, are involved. You know, if there are some people practicing so-called Buddhists that are acting in a very non-Buddhist way, well, we can try to set the example of what would be a proper Buddhist way. But we are one individual. And when you talk about, you know, a collective view, you know, or a, a collective, a larger thing, that is really an imputation, to use the technical term, on many individuals. So you look and you see what's the trend. You know, so this is almost becomes data analysis. That, uh, you know, well, there's X number of, you know, people who are acting, who are nice, and, you know, X number of people who are not terribly nice. And so, you know, we will impute that these are nice, you know, these are nice people. But there's the trend. Well, that has a certain validity. Statistics and so on have a certain validity. But the statistics are made up by each individual acting that way. So I think the important thing is to set an example of what it means to actually put the Buddhist teachings into practice and to try to, you know, the Buddha taught in two ways. You know, there's the scriptural teachings, you know, Lung, so, you know, the way he actually uh, spoke. And then in terms of his realization, in other words, setting an example, and that you teach in both ways, both in terms of, you know, actually verbally teaching, but teaching in terms of the example that you set. And this can only be done individually, and we can inspire others, and then you can see a larger trend, which you impute on that. And in that sense, we uh, try to influence, make things better. But you have to be realistic. You know, it's only the Dalai Lama very, very wise in his approach. He says that it's very difficult to change the habits, the patterns of adults at this point in terms of their way of dealing with problems in the world with just aggression and violence and these sort of things, self-interest. What you need to do is to uh, change the education system so that rather than only te teaching materialistic values, that you also add on top of that basic 
what he calls universal values, you know, human values, basic ethics that are in common with all religions and with those who don't accept any religion. So basic kindness, basic uh, patience, forgiveness, these basic things that are, you know, being affection, affectionate, taking care, these sort of basic type of things. And you can start to teach these values to very young children. And there are programs that are being developed both at one university in America and one university in India for a curriculum to bring this into the education system with very simple exercises. You know, I've seen the material that uh, they're working on. And I mean, I love it. It's, it's, it's brilliant in the sense of uh, they have a, an exercise for kindergarten children. You have a circle and uh, you have the, the kids stand in a circle and you stand in the middle as the teacher and you say, everybody who likes it when somebody is nice to you, come stand in the middle of the circle. So, you know, all the kids like, you know, come in the middle of the circle and then they go back. And it says, everybody who likes it when somebody is mean to you, come into the center of the circle. And nobody comes into the center. And in this way, you teach them, you know, well, being nice is much better than being mean to somebody. You know, there's a difference. And then try to think of, you know, when, you know, somebody's been nice to you. You know, think of, remember acts of kindness. And this way you can start to teach, you know, young children the value of kindness. And like that, you can, you know, gradually introduce these ideas in a non-religious context, you know, in the education system and uh, in pilot projects that they've uh, had. This has been very helpful, very successful. And that's the way to go. If you talk about collectively changing things, you have to start on the level where it can actually be effective and be patient that it's going to take time. And it's really with the, you know, the future generation, these young kids. So, in that way, there can be hope for the future if you can get them to lift their heads out of their phones and actually be involved with, you know, other people. That, I think, is going to, is the big challenge. And when there's, you know, virtual reality um, goggles take over, then, you know, nobody, it's going to be very difficult to engage in the real world. So I firmly believe that uh, it's our responsibility as, you know, people who, who have confidence in the Buddhist teachings to try to explore ways in which you can, you know, help people in the future. The younger generation, you can see already what the problems are going to be. And to think ahead. How can we help the future generation to avoid the dangers of, you know, when most people will be replaced by robots? and artificial intelligence. How are you going to deal with your life? Make it meaningful.
These sort of things we have to think now. That's our responsibility, our collective responsibility. It's to the future generations, young kids now. Ones who, you know, at one and a half year old is already working with a, you know, a tablet monitor. What are they going to be like when they grow up? This is the real challenge if we're going to be responsible Buddhists to help others. Anyone else? Well, why don't we take the remaining time then to just contemplate. When we talk about meditation, meditation means to build up a habit, positive habit. Build a new, a better neural pathway is what we're doing. Of course, you have to quiet down to start with, but uh, just to quiet down is certainly only the start. That's preparation. And the real work is to generate some positive state of mind. And so what we have discussed this evening is basically to sum it all up, is that if we're going to be involved with these very effective and wonderful practices of Tantra, for example, that we need to be properly prepared and think in terms of everything is going to arise <coughs> dependent on causes. And so if we want to achieve <coughs> a result, we have to build up the causes. And then things will follow from cause and effect. So all the various pieces that we want to put together with our Tantra practice, we have to work on them first individually and then gradually try to bring them all together. Even if we just think in terms of, you know, compassion and wisdom, <laughs> the two of them. First you have to practice compassion, and then wisdom, or wisdom first, and then compassion, and then learn to combine them. So I think the thing that we need to have sink in is that uh, this is serious. We're going to practice the Dharma. This is serious work, and we want to you know, as one of my teachers said, if you practice fantasy methods, you'll get fantasy results. If you practice realistic methods, you'll get realistic results. So, approach our Dharma practice in a realistic way. That I want to achieve a goal, and for this I have to do this, 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 and this. In an orderly fashion, and do it with meaning our heart in it. And the more that you accustom yourself to that, 
the more that will sink in. You know, often we ask, what's the difference between an intellectual understanding and a gut understanding, emotional understanding? And I think that this has to do with how convinced we are of something. Intellectual understanding, I know it, but, and we can even be convinced, it's not only convinced, but it is so, we've become so habituated to it that you actually feel it. I think that's the way that you get to a gut feeling of, let's say, love or compassion. Is that we're so used to it, you know, it's not just, you know, well, I should love everybody. Everybody's been so kind to me. I know that, but still I get annoyed. But the more you, and you can even be convinced that this is something very positive to, to develop. I'm very convinced that, you know, well, my whole life depends on the work of others. So they're very kind. They do the work and I don't have to do it. But uh, if we really, really over and over and over again, that's meditation. Then it builds up that positive neural pathway and then you feel it. So that's what we have to do. Neuroplasticity, change the way our mind is wired. And the only way we can do that is through cause and effect. So let that sink in for a few minutes. And the initial thing is to understand that and then to become convinced that that makes sense, that that's correct. That's the first step. Is it correct? And you have confidence. Then you can start to really digest it. Also, I should mention, <laughs> sorry, uh, it comes from one of the instructions of a Sangha, Indian text, that uh, remind yourself with words. In other words, when we're trying to focus on something, there's a misconception that you have to quiet your mind completely and gain perfect concentration. You know, this overemphasis on uh, concentration. And the texts say that, you know, this is not distraction. You know, distraction is thinking about something completely different. That's mental wandering. But in order to remain focused, sometimes you have to 
remind yourself with a key word like compassion or love or something like that to help you stay focused. So, otherwise you just sit there and you space out. And that's not the point. So when you start to space out and nothing is going on, remind yourself with, you know, it doesn't have to be a whole long string of words, you know, just a key word. Okay, one more thing I wanted to add. 
is that uh, I think it's very helpful to look at our tantra practice, especially sadhana practice, this recitation practice, as a mental workout. Many of us have do physical workouts, in which you do various exercises and you repeat them over and over again so that you get physically stronger. This is mental exercise. And it really is a workout if you do sadhana practice correctly. You know that uh, we have inspiration from the gurus and then you have you know, the four measurables and you have refuge and you have bodhicitta and you have vajrasattva and you have you know, guru yoga and you have, you have one thing after another after another. And it's a workout. You can just go blah, 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 and, you know, turn the pages. Or you can actually use it as a mental workout to try to generate these states of mind, one after another after another. You have to be prepared, though, which means that you've worked on each of them beforehand, so it doesn't take you a tremendous amount of time to generate it. You have to be familiar with it already. And then, as a workout, you go through all of these, one after another after another, and it's, it's marvelous if you can do it. And just as, you know, repeated <coughs> physical workouts make you stronger, this is going to make, you know, on a mental and emotional level, these insights and realizations stronger. So if we look at our practice like that, then when you make a commitment that you're going to do this every day for the rest of your life, you don't think of it as something boring. But it's tremendously challenging to look at it that way. This is my practice manual. This is my workout manual, and I'm trying to it's going to take more than a lifetime to be able to really master it. But then you appreciate you know, how great it is to, to have these type of practices. Then you have great respect for the method. So let's end with the dedication. We think whatever understanding, whatever positive forces come from this may go deeper and deeper and act as a cause for everyone to achieve the enlightened state of a Buddha for the benefit of us all. Okay.